Hello, and thank you for joining me on this Think Anesthesia podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Kerr, Technical Services Veterinarian with Jurox. I'm honored to be joined by the amazing Dr. Sheila Robertson, who requires little introduction, but since we're talking about history, let's share a little bit of hers. Dr. Robertson graduated from the University of Glasgow in Scotland in 1980. After working in mixed animal practice in the United Kingdom, she spent a year as a house officer in the surgery department at Bristol University, where she stayed to complete her PhD on the metabolic and hormonal effects of general anesthesia in horses. During this time, she became intrigued by anesthesia and decided to pursue advanced training. She's now board certified in anesthesia and in animal welfare in the US and Europe and holds a certificate in small animal acupuncture and shelter medicine. She spent many years in academia, spending time in Saskatoon, Canada and at Michigan State and the University of Florida in the US. Her research interests are focused on the recognition and alleviation of pain in companion animals. For the past five years, she's held the position of Senior Medical Director of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, a large network of veterinarians dedicated to end-of-life care and in-home euthanasia. She's a courtesy professor in the Department of Small Animal Clinical Sciences at the University of Florida. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Robertson. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about history and Rarely nowadays do I give anyone the date of my graduation, but I thought that because we're talking about history, people could figure out that I've been a veterinarian now for 42 years. So there is some history with anesthesia and myself. There absolutely is. And we appreciate that very much. Let's jump into that. We recently had a Think Anesthesia webinar on the history of veterinary anesthesia and analgesia, and I know you enjoy quite a bit of that history too. Do you have any favorite stories or historical figures in anesthesia? Um, I think that even now, everybody should look back about how far we've come and never forget that if it hadn't been for people being innovative with anesthesia, then surgery could not have advanced because, well, that's pretty straightforward, right? (laughs) Uh, Surgeons can't do anything without us to help do the anesthesia or with the use of anesthetic drugs. So that was a huge turning point in medical history was the introduction of anesthesia and how it just happened. Like, for example, Chloroform and Simpson, he would invite medical students over to dinner He was a doctor in Edinburgh and they would sniff all these different compounds. And then his wife came in to serve dinner one day and they were all under the table. So she figured out they had discovered something and it happened to be chloroform. And there's all the famous cartoons and yeah, it's just observational skills. And then nitrous oxide used to be a party drug and people would have laughing gas parties and Humphrey Davy was at one of these parties when he was in Bristol and just very observant, noticed that somebody at the party like fell over and cut themselves very, very badly, deep gash in their leg, but didn't seem to care. And that resonated with him. And then he put two and two together and figured out that in humans that nitrous oxide was partly an anesthetic and probably analgesic. And then he went on to 
do lots of things with nitrous oxide in humans. So I think it's interesting looking at other story about Napoleon's surgeon. So Napoleon's surgeon, obviously a lot of horrible battle wounds. And he recognized that if he buried the wounded soldiers, injured limbs in snow, that he could amputate them with less pain and also less bleeding. And now we know, like Napoleon's surgeon didn't know, but ice or cold therapy actually activates trip receptors and decreases swelling and is actually an underutilized tool for pain now. So I think it's good to look back at how far we've come in a fairly short time and where we might be going. It's amazing to think just a couple of hundred years ago, we might have been doing surgery with just laudanum on board. But thankfully, some of these people went to dinner parties and nitrous oxide parties and had their eureka moments. I'd love to hear a little bit about your early career in veterinary anesthesia. Was it a little different from what we're doing now? Yeah, so I graduated in 1980 from Glasgow and spent some time in mixed animal practice and actually saw myself as being a surgeon. In the UK, they were house officer positions, so I applied for one at Bristol University and was lucky enough to get that. And it was a year appointment, so it would be more like an internship nowadays. That was all surgery, but we rotated through radiology and anesthesia. And during my rotation in anesthesia, I was fascinated by every question I asked the anesthetist. There wasn't a good answer. Uh, We were using thiopental. I would ask, we can give thiopental intravenously and our dog goes to sleep and it wakes up. But we can also give them inhalant agents. And at that time, it was halothane, methoxyfluorine. And actually, we were using cyclopropane sometimes in the old orange tanks. I'm terrified when the surgery professor with his cigarette walked by. Ah, (laughs) That's horrifying. Um, and And I would say, so why can they inhale a drug and go to sleep? Or we can inject a drug and go to sleep. What's happening in the brain? And uh, this was, uh, this was Jeremy Luke, a very prestigious anesthesiologist at the time. And he said, you know, we don't know. We don't really know what's going on. And I was like, how can that be? So I was just like, well, maybe if I did more on anesthesia, I could answer some of those questions. And uh, I think now we still don't really know exactly what's happening in the brain because Anesthesia is very different from natural sleep and examining in real time what's happening in people's brains. We've come a long way, but I would still say that anesthesia is still a bit of a mystery, but how we use it is the skill that we have to have because we don't know exactly what the drugs are doing, but we know a lot about them. I agree. It's still surprising that we don't understand so much of what's happening, but definitely a lot more than we used to. Oh, yeah. And partly thanks to your work. So thank you. Which changes do you think have had the biggest impact on the practice of anesthesia in your career? Well, the agreement by the sort of forward-looking people that animals felt pain, that was probably the big one. And if you think about it, you know, that wasn't new. I mean, Bentham, the ethicist, 
said it wasn't that animals couldn't reason, that wasn't what we should be arguing about or discussing, it was whether or not they could suffer. And that's probably the first philosopher who brought up the plight of animals like suffering and that they could feel pain. That's what we should be discussing. Um, but certainly when I was early in my career or as a student, which was 1976 to 80, a lot of animals went through surgery without very many analgesics. I mean, obviously they were unconscious for the procedure, so not aware but as soon as they woke up, there weren't a lot of analgesics on board. But then I started looking at human pediatric surgery. And there was back in the 50s, the feeling surgeons and anesthesiologists would say, well, babies are so frail, they can't withstand the dangers of anesthesia. And mm -hmm. so often they were paralyzed with a neuromuscular blocker and had surgical procedures done until parents started realizing that the children were dying from pain, not necessarily the surgery. And then people got on board and realized that you could give anesthetics to very, very young children and then obviously analgesics. But in the mid-1950s, newborn babies had no anesthetic for surgical procedures other than paralysis. So that's very recent. And then we've had some wonderful pediatricians and then people in the veterinary field really push analgesia for all species and all ages. It's been great to see some of that collaboration there for non-verbal yeah. patients. I remember I really liked anatomy lab and I'm like, well, yeah. this dissection is nothing different from what I know my friends in med school are doing. So why... Would there be any difference in how animals perceive painful stimuli? And so I know I used a lot of morphine in animals when I first started, because it was really the only potent opioid we had. And we were using obviously the human product. And so that was probably the first potent analgesic that I used in all species, including horses to help them. Yeah. I think those animals were lucky to have you as their anaesthetist back then. You've been a force for positive change in both anesthesia and animal welfare, especially in the field of feline pain management and really optimizing the entire experience for cats. What drew you to that area? Well, it's kind of interesting. I, I did my PhD using horses and was looking at general anesthesia and we were blood sampling horses and measuring a lot of metabolic hormonal biomarkers for what the stress of anesthesia was to them and it was like oh it's a horse I'll take 20 mils and then an extra 20 mils and spin it down and freeze it so I never thought twice and then I did some other research and then I for some reason decided to do a cat project because I felt like cats were really always playing, you know, second fiddle, so to speak. It was like dogs, 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 dogs in small animal. And then it was like, oh, and there's cats or even Absolutely. book chapters. It was everything about dogs with a paragraph tagged on with cats. And I said, oh, what about looking at cats? So I did my first cat experiment and I was again looking for things like cortisol changes and realized, ooh, I can only take a mil or so. <laughs> And it was a whole different thing. And then I found that 
cats didn't cooperate as easily as horses. I had well-trained research horses that, you know, at 2 a.m. when I was out getting a sample, you know, just me, horse, easy. Cat, me, 2 a.m., no one else there. Whole different story. So I had to learn to understand cats and how to get them to cooperate with me. So that's when I really began to understand cat behavior and how different they were from every other species that I had worked with. And I think the frustration and the challenge of that first project motivated me to go, I'm going to understand cats. You know, it's the last thing I do. I'm going to understand cats. And then I began to really respect cats for what they are and continued to do that feline research. I love that the theme of all these decisions have been wanting to understand more about something. That's really inspiring. What do you think is one of the biggest things you've learned about cats on that journey? Well, first of all, understanding their difference in metabolism and how they evolve compared to dogs and how they're hyper carnivores. And that's why when we plan on designing a drug or developing a drug for cats, they have their unique metabolism. Their glucuronidation pathways are very different from other species. We know how evolution has led to that. And then I think the other thing is just understanding their behavior and how, uh, how affected they are by stress and fear, how we can work with them, not against them. I think a lot of that was going on with groups of people that I chose to work with. Be, even before feline friendly became a thing. And I'm so glad that feline friendly practice and the AFP and ISFM and all these groups have done so much to teach people how to work with cats to get a good result and not work against them, which is what yeah. a lot of people feel like, you know, I can make this cat do something. And, you know, once you understand why they're doing what they're doing, it all comes from normal behavior. Well, I'm going to defend myself. Why wouldn't I? I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're going to do. Once we put ourselves in the cat's place and look at it through the cat's eyes, you can understand why for years it was difficult to have cats cooperate with you <laughs> during um, an appointment. And I think that's, uh, I'm so happy that People are embracing feline-friendly handling for their whole team and having students trained in feline handling before they even hit clinics now. A lot of my students in the old days, they were like, I don't like cats. I'm scared of cats. You know, they, they bite and they scratch. And I went, oh, only if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I kind of felt that way a little bit myself. And it was a little bit of an adjustment to think, well, maybe this cat would rather not be biting and scratching but be a little more comfortable and happy. We still have challenging cats and I still volunteer at community cat clinics or what some people would call feral cats. But even there, we can decrease stress and develop or create equipment that allows us to work very safely with them and keep us safe and not hurt them and get what we need done, which is to get them spayed and neutered and vaccinated. Um, so a lot of it's teamwork and thinking outside the box of we have an issue, we have a problem, we have an idea, then we test it. And does it work? Yes. If it doesn't, then we're back at the beginning and we try again. <laughs> That's what inventors have done always. A lot of failures before there's a success. 
that really is the truth. I remember submitting my very first paper for publication. And in those days, it was pretty much um, handwritten. And then if you were lucky, you found a typist to type it up for you. And then you put it in an envelope and post it off or mail it off. And then it comes back and first one that came back had more red pen marks on it than my original black type mark oh. on it. Yeah. So, and I was like, oh, and uh, but my mentors were like, yeah, well, that's that's normal. Yeah. Fix it, try again. And um, yeah, it, it's how it goes. Yeah, it's definitely a valuable learning experience, I'm sure, even if it hurts the ego a little bit. when that that red pen comes back (laughs) and it's interesting talking about how feline pain is different because it was it only this year the first feline pain specific guidelines came out and I believe you were pretty high up on that list of authors yeah a lot of the big organizations have done a great job with either anesthesia or pain management guidelines but they've usually been dog and cat And the one that you're referring to was the International Society for Feline Medicine, ISFN, um, approached um, Paolo Stigal and myself to head up a team of people to write feline-specific analgesic guidelines. And at the start of my career, that would have been less than a page (laughs) (laughs) because we didn't have a lot. We just had what we knew and not a lot of drugs that had come to market specifically for cats. We were you know, borrowing drugs from the human side, the dog side, all over the place. I mean, I remember using flunixin in cats. Oh, wow. Yep. I mean, there are papers and it can be done. It's not what I would do now, but that became a very, very large project. And it talks not just about all the drugs and doses in the cats in the ISFM guideline. It talks about tender loving care, nursing care, low stress, because when you're stressed or fearing the situation, then that makes pain worse. And then pain makes you anxious. And then it's a vicious cycle. So it's very integrative and somewhat holistic because it's the whole picture, like what matters to the cat while they're under your care. Yeah, I think those guidelines are wonderful. And you mentioned that there initially weren't all that many pharmaceuticals labeled for cats. And just this year, we've seen two new ones released. Do you have much experience or thoughts on those? Yeah. So the one that I think everybody has been waiting, certainly in North America, has been waiting for Solenzia. So that's the monoclonal antibody against nerve growth factor. That is a specific product for osteoarthritic pain in cats. And that's been available in some other countries, including the United Kingdom, for two years with great reports. And all my colleagues in the UK telling me how effective it was and how owners had embraced it. And then we now have it in North America, so Canada and the US. And so I think it is available for everybody to purchase as of October. And I got some early release product. And I was lucky enough to have a patient of mine called Lou, who I've known for a long time. So he got his first injection when he was 24 years old, about about six (laughs) weeks ago. And then he turned 25 and he's had his second injection. And he's certainly livelier and walking better. And the owners have built him a ramp that 
was pretty much not being used. And now he can walk up his ramp and plump himself down on the couch. And uh, so that's been really nice. So it's a once a month subcutaneous injection. So it gives us ownership of compliance because the biggest issue with owners, including myself, is medicating cats, either in busy households, remembering to give a pill every day or even getting it into the cat. And even some of the tasty things or the things we use, not every cat goes for it. So this is 100% compliance because we give it under the skin and we give it once a month. And so I think it's going to be a game changer. And also in the US, there's no approved long-term non-steroidal for cats. So it's always been off-label, um, even though there are some non-steroidals in other countries that are for long-term musculoskeletal um, pain. We don't have one in the US. So it was always people having to go off label. And there are cats with pretty advanced kidney disease or chronic kidney disease, where there's a balancing act with non-steroidals. But now we have Silenzia. And, yeah. uh, and I never thought in my lifetime, I'd see a monoclonal antibody against pain and that cats would get it before humans because it is being developed Finally. for humans. <laughs> Finally, no. justice for cats. Yeah. And nor would the product and development people make it, be able to make it affordable for pet owners because a lot of the human maps, as we call them, are very, very expensive. But this one is at a price point that it's very affordable for a one monthly injection um, for cat owners. That's great. And I'm so glad Lou got to feel better on his 25th yeah. birthday than he might have on his 24th. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, he's definitely active more of the day. Where would you like to see future advances come? We've talked a lot about what's happened, what we have now, but looking forward, what would you like to see people focusing on or learn more about? I, I think in feline, one of the first things that we need to get around is the need for an owner to medicate or orally a cat at mm -hmm. home every day. Because we have data that came out recently showing that over 35% of owners fail to complete a course of medication. And it could be a very, very good plan that the veterinarians made, but it just, compliance is not possible. And so that's why the other new product, Zorbium, which is the transdermal gel of buprenorphine, again, we can regain compliance. And so we administer it in the veterinary clinic. And it goes on the back of the neck and it's in a gel and it's absorbed. So it's very safe to touch the cat within 30 minutes. And that is slowly released over four days. So it's for acute, different type of pain. It's for acute perioperative pain, whereas Silenzia is for chronic arthritic pain. But that, again, is forward thinking people like taking back ownership of compliance and not putting that on owners that really struggle and in one paper, they interviewed over two and a half thousand owners and medicating cats changed their relationship with their cat over half of the time and not for the better. It was for the worse. And to break that human cat bond because we have to medicate them is something that is a real challenge. And now I think we've got technology. We have some FDA approved drugs like mirtazapine that can go transdermally. Um, although we have quite a lot of 
compounded drugs that have no proven efficacy that people are using. But I think if they go through the FDA approach and we know it works and it's not a tablet, um, we can help a lot more cats. I, I think that's the biggest issue with cats for long-term or even short-term medication it is getting away from pills and liquids. That's a really good point. And that paper made me so sad that it had affected that human-animal bond so strongly in these families. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And it's just watching all the things. Um, earlier, I was just thinking about in the 1980s when I used Safan, a, lot, a drug probably people have forgotten about, but it was the predecessor to Duroxy's Alfaxan. And I used it in cats back in the 1980s, and then it disappeared off the market. And I was so excited when it came back as a new formulation for dogs and for cats. So that's old drugs reinventing themselves, being reformulated to come back. I think that's exciting. And I think the other drug that is reinventing itself is ketamine. It's no longer a dissociative anesthetic only. We now know it can be anti-hyperalgesic, low doses can help pain in humans. It's used for frontline trauma because it's got such a high safety index and again prevents probably post-traumatic stress and phantom limb pain in certainly military settings. And then it is being used as an antidepressant for people that have failed a lot of other treatments. So that's a fascinating drug <laughs> considering it really that it's, it's basically molecule or skeleton started out as PCP and then slowly evolved into ketamine. And it's a fascinating drug, old, but fascinating. And now we're seeing all the other properties that drug has. Yeah, I'm excited to see what ketamine can do next. Honestly, new things keep emerging. And it's yep. amazing how they used it with the Thai cave diving boys. Oh, it was integral in that rescue. Yep. So if anyone listening in hasn't watched or read the books about how they rescued the soccer team that got trapped in the Thailand caves with their soccer coach, one of the people that went in was an MD anesthesiologist and a veterinarian, and they actually anesthetized the boys with ketamine. So it was very, very safe because people keep breathing with it and they were having to basically put these boys in dry suits and pull them through the cave. And it also stopped them dying of hypothermia because that's the other benefit of ketamine. It's vasoconstricts and you don't drop your temperature. And it was like a six to eight hour journey. And these people, it was just, it was try this or we're not going to rescue them. So 13 Lives by Ron Howard is the director. Um, fascinating how medicine and ketamine and veterinarians and MDs all work together to save that team. That one's a great story and nice to see some vets in the mix too. Yep, definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Was there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? No, I just think we, I've learned a lot over my 42 years. And so I guess my philosophy at this point in my career is to pass it forward, I guess, to the younger generation and I've learned from my mistakes, so often I will lecture with, well, here's a mistake I made, and here's how for you not to make that mistake. So, you know, the, those of us with a lot of experience have a lot to offer, 
Um, but it's harder for us to keep up with all the new data, but we certainly are good at MacGyvering things and we've seen old fashioned techniques and um, we've seen the advances. So my goal for the rest of my career is to pay it forward with the newer generation of upcoming veterinarians to make anesthesia the best and the safest it can be along with analgesia for all animals that deserve it. Thank you for dedicating your career. A lot of veterinarians and technicians, I'm sure, are really valuing that. We're all learning a lot. Yep. And I learn so much from the people I work with every day, right? You should, it teaches you, you should listen to everyone because everybody in the team may have a good idea as long as you let them speak up. That's a really great point. We can learn so much from listening to others. And speaking of listening, thank you to our Think Anesthesia subscribers for tuning into this podcast. If you have any ideas for content you'd like to see or hear on Think Anesthesia, reach out to our team at thinkanesthesia at and join us next month for more anesthesia-related goodies.